So I picked up the phone and this voice went, he said, Bolt. I said, yeah. He said, it's Pete Townsend. Yeah, I went, yeah, right. <laughs> he said, no, no, it is. Don't hang up. He said, listen, I've got a question for you. Will you play lead guitar for The Who? I said, excuse me? I said, you know, aren't you? He said, yeah, but I've got a hearing problem. And there's only two people in the whole world that ask this question. One's you and the other's uh, Joe Walsh. And quick as a flash, I said, we can't have Joe Walsh, can he? He's American. He said, yeah, I suppose you're right. Hello and welcome to episode 69 of Vintage Rock Pod, the ultimate classic rock podcast that proudly claims that my music is better than yours. I'm Paul Stevenson. Thanks, as always, for hitting play. Now, it's been a while since I put out an interview show for you. As I explained on last week's episode, we are slap bang in the middle of festival touring season. And pretty much everyone I've approached have told me that their acts are either on tour, just about to go on tour, or have just finished a tour and need a break. So, these interviews won't be coming as thick and fast as usual, but that doesn't mean I don't have some great guests with some great stories to tell for you. Just like today's guitar hero, a man who was personally asked by Pete Townsend to join The Who to help him with the guitar parts. Yes, true. He's also worked on many other big number one selling albums and singles, and is of course part of the fantastic British rock band Atomic Rooster, who had a number of hits in the UK in the early 70s, including the track Devil's Answer, which hit number four in 1971. I'm talking about Steve Bolton, known in the industry as Bolts, and I'm looking forward to you hearing him tell some of his great stories very soon. But first, as always, some hellos and some thank yous. Now, I asked on the end of uh, Great Rock Stories, Volume 3, if you were a Facebook fan of the Vintage Rock Pub page, then please, and thank you, it would be great if you could take 30 seconds to leave a five-star review. It's very easy to do. It's just a couple of clicks. You click the five stars, all done, and it helps the page look good or... So I believe. Anyway, I've only just found out about this myself. And I have to say a huge thank you to friend of the show, Andy Old, for not just hitting the five stars button, but for leaving an incredible review as well. I'm very touched by your kind words, Andy. I don't want to read it all out, but just a short line. He said, most of all, being a fan and subscriber is like joining an extended rock family. Paul always responds to emails and Facebook post comments from other fans which are also great for sharing our mutual interests. Now, I've said it before, but being a one-man podcaster, you know, I don't have a team of producers or editors or PR folk or marketing team or that sort of stuff behind me. It is literally just me. So sometimes putting out these episodes can be quite a lonely thing. I sit here in my studio, basically talking to myself, pretty much like I am now. So I really do love it, and I mean it, when I get emails or messages or comments on Facebook or replies on Twitter, that sort of thing. It makes all the work worthwhile to know that you're enjoying this too. Now, as always, the best way to reach out is to email vintagerockpod at gmail.com, vintagerockpod at gmail.com, or you can find Vintage Rock Pod on all the social media platforms, and you give us a like and a couple of comments or some replies, whatever it is, and I'd love to get back to you. Also, a quick recap on the This Day Rocks episodes. It's been back for a couple of weeks now, and so far, the short three or four minute daily episodes have featured many guests. So I want to say thank you to Philip from Pink Floyd Collectors, who was talking about the 40th anniversary of the war movie. Uncle Steve from Uncle Steve's Iron Maiden Zone, talking about Bruce Dickinson for his birthday. Uh, Stephen Arnoff talking Bob Dylan. Action Jackson from the Ugly American Werewolf in London podcast, talking about the 35th anniversary of Death Leopard's Hysteria album 
35 years, crazy. Uh, Corey from Backtracks, Aerosmith Revisited. He was commemorating the day Aerosmith signed their first recording contract. And Lee McCormack from Tramps Like Us podcast, talking about Bruce Springsteen's award-winning, multi-platinum-selling Rising album. Now, as well as these brilliant and knowledgeable guests, there's been clips from John Ilsley of Dire Straits talking about Money for Nothing, Jim McCarty from The Yardbirds talking about the end of the band and the start of Zeppelin, uh, Yorma Kalkinen from Jefferson Airplane, Dave Brock from Hawkwind, Bob Catley from Magnum, and Pete Staples from The Trogs as well. And that is literally all those guests have appeared in the last two weeks. So if you're not already listening to those daily shows, then please do give them a go. It's only three minutes of your time. It's well worth it, even if I do so say so myself. And lastly, before we get into our fantastic guests interview, last Tuesday night I attended a small scale gig, a couple hundred people maybe, at the Hard Rock Cafe in Glasgow. Now last year I interviewed former Blue Oyster Cult member Albert Bouchard. It was a fun interview indeed, check it out on episode 44. Now his manager got in touch with me and uh, managed to secure a couple of guest list passes to see the opening night of his tour with his brother Joe, who of course was with Blue Oyster Cult for many years as well. It was the Bouchard brothers, along with with uh, Joe's wife on stage. They played all the big Blue Oyster Cult songs. They opened with Cities on Flame with Rock and Roll and Burning For You. They, of course, played the likes of Astronomy and Don't Fear the Reaper and Godzilla was part of the encore as well. They also played a couple of songs from their recent solo albums and threw in the odd cover as well. Now, overall, it was a fun night. The brothers were funny. Albert wore a kilt for the occasion, told some funny stories and, okay, there were the odd opening night teething troubles, but on the whole, it was an enjoyable show. The small crowd, were very, very happy and lapped it up. There was an old boy down the front with a BOC t-shirt on singing along to pretty much every song and there was a lot of dancing and video phones being used as well. If you are a fan of Blue Oyster Cult and you get the chance to see them either on this UK tour or when they get back to the States, then go along. It's obviously not a full-on arena-style Blue Oyster Cult show, but a fun night for sure. And speaking of live gigs, if you are out and about seeing live shows, and there's plenty of them, isn't there? Then uh, let me know. Send in your reviews. I'd love to share them. After all, we're all classic rock fans here, aren't we? Right, on to today's show then. And as I said earlier, it was a real pleasure to catch up with this guy, a real character, Steve Boltz Bolton. He's a member of Atomic Rooster, who was started by former members of the crazy world of Arthur Brown, Vincent Crane and Carl Palmer. Yes, that's Carl Palmer. Carl left Atomic Rooster a few years after they formed to form... Emerson, Lake and Palmer, of course. Now, also a member of the band in the 70s and still is today, along with Bolts, is Pete French, who was also the lead singer of Carmine Apice's group Cactus, and he sang on the album Ot and Sweaty. As I said earlier, Atomic Rooster scored big success in the UK in the early 70s with a top five hit, Devil's Answer, and another that peaked at 11, Tomorrow Night. Their best-known albums include Death Walks Behind You, which reached number 12 in the UK, 13 in Australia, top 50 in Canada, and also broke the top 100 in America. Another record, In Hearing of Atomic Rooster, was also a top 20 hit in the UK and top 50 in Canada as well. Now, as well as working with Atomic Rooster, Boltz also joined The Who, played on many of Paul Young's big hits and albums, and worked with many other stars, including Belinda Carlisle. 
Now, Atomic Rooster will be playing the Great British R&B, Rhythm and Blues, Rock Roots Folk Festival in Colne in Lancashire, along with a number of other top acts that we've had here on the Vintage Rock Pod, including Jerry McAvoy, John Steele's Animals and Friends, Lindisfarne, FM and many others. It takes place on the last weekend of this month. There are some tickets still available, so make sure to get them now if you haven't already done so. It's three days with a cracking lineup. It's going to be an awful lot of fun. Visit bluesfestival.co.uk for all the details. So here we go. Enjoy this fun chat with Steve Boltz Bolton. I'm delighted to be joined by Steve Bolton, or Boltz, as he's known in the business. Steve, how are you? I'm good. How are you, Paul? I'm good. I'm good indeed. Very good. very hot. It is, yes. And where are you? Are you in a little studio there? I can see some instruments and things around you. Yeah, it's my, my uh, garden cabin, a bit of a studio thing, you know, get away, play guitar. Down in Folkestone. Very nice. Very nice indeed. And just to put people in the picture, we're kind of in the middle of a heat wave here in the UK, aren't we? So it is very hot. Very hot, yeah. Very hot indeed. And speaking of things that are very hot, the uh, the Great British Rhythm and Blues Festival is going to be exceedingly hot because there's some incredible bands playing this year. We've got John Steele and Animals and Friends are there and FM are there, Linda's Farn, Jerry McAvoy is there and, and your band as well, Atomic Rooster, are going to be there, aren't they? Atomic Rooster are going to be one of my bands, yeah. One of yeah, your bands. Atomic Rooster are going to be there. And it's uh, it's all down to Pete Barton, really. That we're but that Atomic Rooster is. And um, when you come to, to to festivals like this and different acts, uh, do you get to to spend any time backstage with 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 guys that you've probably not bumped into for a while, that sort of thing? Well, we've done quite a few um, of the bottlings things. You know, the bottlings that oh yeah, out on these weekends, which is I, I think they're really fantastic. We've done a few of those, and we, you know, I, I get to meet because I've been around a long time. I get to bump into people that I haven't seen for years, and. Uh, uh, yeah, so it's, it's good sometimes to chat. We will be staying over. Pete French and I, who travel from down south, up to us. But you know, any chance to be up north because that's where I, that's where I'm from. So you know, any chance to be up north is good for me. And uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to it. So let's just uh, speak a little bit about your career then, uh, Bolts. Um, let's skip to Atomic Rooster. I mean, with them now, one of your bands, as you said. Uh, but you joined them in 1971 to, to tell the band's third album at that point, In Hearing Atomic Rooster. And um, following on the back of that came the single Devil's Answer, which was a big hit here in the UK. It was top five, wasn't it? Well, that was top five when I joined the band. It was... Um, Basically, I was, I'm from Manchester, and we decided, the small semi-pro band, and we decided to, if we were going to do anything, we had to come down to London, as you, you would have done then. And the whole thing was slightly different then, you know, because, um, so the band hit, hit the big city, and Classic split up. And so I was sort of hanging on for dear life to be in London, and staying, sleeping on his friends' sofas and stuff. And I got a job playing a guitar in a strip club in Stort Soho. <laughs> a band, you know, and I'm like, you know, I'm like 19, <laughs> com- but completely, not like a 19-year-old now, I, completely green behind the ears, you know what I mean? Didn't much. <laughs> and, um, eyes forward. Yeah. <laughs> eyes forward, yeah. And uh, so I'm, I'm kind of hanging on for dear life. And uh, in those days, you get, there were two main music papers, the Enemy, yep. and the Melody Maker. They both had, had especially the Melody Maker had classified ads in the back. You know, musicians wanted for this band, no bread heads, all that sort of thing. But also top bands. So I saw this advert for it was like a little box advert, slightly bigger than the rest, and it had Atomic Rooster uh, require a lead guitar player to start immediately for a US tour. Phone phone number, which is Vincent Crane's phone number, you know. Wow. You wouldn't get that now. No. <laughs> so I um, 
I, I must say, at this point, I was actually in the band. I was in Manchester. I was a rhythm guitar player. In fact, not because I was, you know, because I really, that's what I wanted to be. So mm -hmm. I spent my early part learning my chord chops and being a rhythm player. And that sort of kind of morphed into, and at this point, uh, I didn't really feel confident to be a lead guitar player. You know, it was just really... So a friend of mine, James Litherland, who, who was playing in Coliseum at the time, who was a school friend of mine, he, uh, overnight, like, one, one, 24 hours, he gave me, like, some lessons, lead guitar lessons, wow. before I went for this audition with Atomic Rooster. And uh, anyway, I got the job. And, uh, <laughs> and it was insane. Before, you know, before, before I knew it, I was off to America and... You know, the States in 1971 was kind of like the 60s. I mean, it's complete drug chaos. You know, you played gigs and people were just hanging from the walls at the side of the stage. <laughs> no security then. It was just bags of grass being thrown. You know, it was like full on. Yeah. And so I had uh, two tours back to back, both six-week tours. And Rick Parnell, who was a drummer, who's just recently passed on, you know, Rick. Mm -hmm. And dear Rick, he was my... Here's my guru, shall we say. He taught me, you know, various things to do. You know what I'm saying? Uh, <laughs> but we toured America, and it, it was just amazing. You know, it was just like... Uh, I, so I was in Rooster for the first, these 18 months, I would say, from, you know, 1971 to 72. And the singer in the band was Pete French, because at that point, Vincent had sort of like, or got rid of all the other two, John Cann and, uh, and Paul Hammond, had left. So that left Vincent Crane, who, by the way, I'd seen play at Manchester University. I used to go to gigs at the Uni on Oxford Road, and I'd seen The Crazy World of Arthur Brown. This happened with The Who, you know. I would see these bands and think, my God, this is the best. You know, I never think, you know, that one day you'd be playing with them. So that was two years previously. So anyway, Pete French had been drafted in as a singer, which I think needled John Can. You know, because to get a singer in, because John Cam was a singer, right? So then after off, we'd left, we'd left Vincent and um, and Pete French. And so Rick, who I think had flirted with Atomic Rooster briefly before, just, I think, a few months in depth for John Paul Hammond or something. Uh, and so basically we had a quick rehearsal in, in a pub in King's Cross. And we, we did a couple of warm-up gigs and we were off to the States. So that was it. So, and Pete French was the singer for the first third of that, my period in Atomic Rooster. He got poached by Carmine Peach, who we thought was our yeah. friend. He, you know, we hung out with him. <laughs> we didn't realise he, he, he had designs on Pete French. <laughs> but anyway, so, yeah. So after, after the second tour, Pete French left. And then, um, and Vincent, we were looking for a singer. And, you know, I put a couple of people forward, a guy from Manchester. and so, But Vincent came one day and said, no, I think we're going to get Chris Farlow in the band. I mean, God bless Chris Farlow. He's a fantastic singer, but we didn't think he was right for the band. And it it kind of like, it was good. You know, Chris was great. Don't get me wrong. And uh, so, but then when you're that young as I was, I, I, I didn't think, you know, I, I've got friends who've been in bands for like 40 years. Manfred Mann's band, and they're, they're singing. it's like a any of the Jules Holland band. They've been in these bands for like years and years and years because they they know what it's like outside, how to make a living. If you've got a safe job, 
for me, I, I've got this thing. After a certain while, I just go, I've got to change. I've got to do something. So I just left. And, yeah, that's that's what happened. And then and it was Pete Barton uh, that phoned me up. I didn't know him. He phoned me up about five years ago and said that he'd been asked to, if he could supply an Atomic Rooster tribute act. And Pete, being the guy he is, said, I can do better than that. And he phoned <laughs> me up and said, he said, would you and uh, Pete French, can you give him a call? We'd be up for reforming Atomic Rooster. And I kind of got a few flags from various people on Facebook and stuff like saying, why don't you reform Atomic Rooster? And it wasn't really on my mind. But I said, yeah, why not? I thought maybe it could be a money-making exercise, which it's not, uh, which has turned out not to be. But, you know, it's another income, you know. And so so I phoned Pete French up, and I also phoned up Vincent Crane's widow to see if it was all right with her, and she gave me mm-hmm. the blessing, and, yeah, here we are. Phenomenal. Just touching on the, on the kind of here and now then, I mean, as you said, five years ago, you got back together with Pete French and stuff, and all, yeah. you do have different bands and things like that, but how yeah. do you enjoy playing the music of, of Atomic Rooster, and how, how do the fans react to it as well? Because a lot of legacy bands and older acts are, are welcome back and are loved. I mean, I saw a couple of uh, uh, the Bouchard brothers from Blue Oyster Cult just a couple of nights ago, and right, people right. were going wild for them. Yeah, well, I mean, uh, yeah, people, there, there is, there is a, a lot of fans out there, and they're fans from all over the world saying, when are you coming to South America? When are you coming to this? When are you coming to that? In all honesty, um, we we were really big in Germany and Italy, as far as I can remember, and UK, of course, but America is such a big market. So, yeah, so there are lots of... And we do get a few people say, you know, virtually, you know, like without Vincent Crane, you know, but I, I just say we're playing Vincent's music. There's no animosity. We've got the blessing of his... Uh, of his widow, and uh, yeah, we're doing it for Vincent. I always say that, I guess, we're doing it for Vincent. And uh, it's a great band. It's not just a band going through the motions. This is a great band. Yeah, It's a bit of a crime that we haven't recorded new material, but, but we're spread all over the country, and it's just been difficult. And one, yeah. one thing, but it's a great band. Yeah. You know, and everyone in the band is really playing their bots off. You know, it's really... And, oh, the thing I do like about this version of Atomic Rooster, the music is quite complicated. You know, even, <laughs> you know, I can't remember. And so there are points when we really paint ourselves into a corner, we can get ourselves out of it. When we look at each other, we laugh. The audience thinks it's fantastic. You know, when we do that, and they can tell that we go off on one, it's like, whoa, how are we going to get out of this one? Because someone's made a mistake, but we sort of capitalise on that. So it's all good fun, lots of smiles even though we're singing about death and... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> a lot of smiling, indeed. Now, um, you mentioned leaving Atomic Rooster. You, you've worked with so many incredible acts, and I'm just going to touch on a couple, if you don't mind, just yeah. just getting your experiences of these. And, and one is, is Paul Young. I, I've spoke to Paul Young in the past, and yeah. you worked with him on the, the No Parley album, which was huge. It was a number one in the UK. It had some it? incredible singles on there, Wherever I Lay My Hat, Love of the Common People, Come Back and Stay. I mean, yeah. it was packed full of big hit songs around the world. I mean... What was that like at that time working with Paul and, and touring that sort of stuff? Well, that was really weird because I knew the producer. I knew the producer, um, Laurie Latham, from a, a, a psychedelic band that had the Vampire Bats from Lewisham before. So I kind of knew him and uh, he got a phone. He, 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 he phoned me up and said, I'm doing this album with Paul Young from the street band. I remember like yeah. Toast and stuff. He said, um, they've, 
they didn't want to have a guitar on, on board. They wanted to do it without the song. Paul would play guitar. And they've done a couple of gigs, but they realised that they need a guitar, you know, so I was wondering. So then uh, I got a phone call from Paul, and he said, well, can you come up to uh, John Henry's studio we're having a rehearsal and come along, you know? So, so I came along, I played, and he came up, he said, yeah, that's fantastic. He said, you're in. I said, cool. He said, we've nearly finished the album, No Parlay, mm -hmm. and we're a couple of tracks short. Have you got a song? This is all at the rehearsal. And I said, well, I wrote a song last night, as it happens, which I did, Cuckoo Karama, which I just, yeah. someone lent me a drum machine, and I just messing around, and I, I wrote the song. It's a nonsense song, really. But I played him the demo. Well, I said demo, it's like cassette player, cassette. Yeah. <laughs> and he said, great, we'll do it. So that that was good, you know. I, I got myself a convertible Beetle and a new bed from the, <laughs> from the from the from CBS Music, you know. So it was great, and with Pino Palladino, so it it was a fantastic band. The same thing again. It wasn't just like a an eighties pop band. This was a real nitty gritty band. And Pino and I used to stand together. And we were really we were the funk section. I, I played funk rhythm and put, that's what swung it for Paul with me although doing that lead stuff on the strap, you know, it was that sort of 80s thing where I'd be yeah. pipe bombing and, you know, doing all that stuff. But a lot of it was was funk with, you know, really, really driving band. And we used to come off stage just happy and hugging each other. It was just amazing. And we, yeah, we travelled, we travelled everywhere. We travelled all around the States, all around Europe. I think two years non-stop with that band. And Paul, on top of that, had, like, interviews, TV. Sometimes we do two gigs a day and we never, you know, we we would like have a day off between the European tour and the American tour. We'd fly home. I'd see my then wife and just like, yeah, and then we'd be off again. It was just really full on. I think it kind of took its toll on Paul as it would do, you know, the yeah. voice started to suffer. But I'm, I'm still in touch with Paul. In fact, I spoke to him yesterday about something. And uh, yes, yeah, so, so that was fantastic. You know, that was, that was a great band. And then same thing again, after two years, I thought I've got to do my own stuff. So I left. I think we'd recorded the second album and I'm going to tell you Playhouse Down was, was the single. Yeah. So Paul said, oh, that's the thing. He said, "We can you come around and promote this record? You know, so I said, yeah. So, so I had like about, I don't know, 18 months before they asked me back. So I missed out on the Live Aid thing because that was before they asked me back. Yeah. Because they had a guy in who just wasn't uh, right. And they asked me back. And uh, yes, yeah, so I did the third album. Then we did we did World Tours, opening up the Genesis all around everywhere. But uh, yeah, it was a great band. And you speak about great bands. Another great band is, is The Who. And you played with them. You toured with them. I mean, yeah. how on earth did that come about? Know, That's incredible. But, yeah. I don't know. It's so, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I saw The Who as a teenager. But yeah. <laughs> I saw them, and I mentioned this to John Entwistle, I saw them when they, as a three-piece without Roger Daltrey. Uh -huh. When I was a mod uh, up in Manchester, we got word that the, that the Who were doing a secret gig over in Bury, like a top-ranked palais thing. So we drove over there on scooters, you know, and there's about 20 of us in there. Keith Moon's drum kit, The Who, two stacked, and they played without Roger Daltrey. And I remember speaking to John Entwistle afterwards at the bar. I said, well, he said, yeah, I know he's done too much speed. You know, I was in hospital. He subsequently <laughs> told me, he told me years ago when I played with the, he said, no, what you saw 
was a gig because Pete has always not got on with Roger. And so he was trying it out without Roger. Roger didn't know they were doing gigs without him. Anyway, so yeah, yeah. I saw them do Tommy at Free Trade Hall, Manchester. So I'm seeing The Who, who was just like one of the best live bands ever then, with Mooney in the band. It was just every, I saw three gigs and everything like, not once did it even cross my mind that I'd be playing with them, you know. So it went like this. I hadn't worked for a while. I was married with a one-year-old kid. My wife was having an affair. She worked in Harley Street, having an affair with a heart surgeon. I ended up in Harley Street screaming, fix this motherfucker, you know. <laughs> and so one day in South East London, my phone rang. My, and I'm boiling some eggs. I thought, that's it. I'm giving up music. That's it. So I picked up the phone, my landline, and his voice went, he said, Bolt. I said, yeah. He said, it's Pete Townsend here. I went, yeah, right. <laughs> he said, no, no, it is. Don't hang up. He said, listen, I've got a question for you. Will you play lead guitar for The Who? <laughs> I said, excuse me? I said, you know, aren't you? He said, yeah, but I've got a hearing problem. And there's only two people in the whole world that asked this question. One's you and the other's uh, Joe Walsh. And quick as a flash, I said, we can't have Joe Walsh, can he? He's American. He said, yeah, I suppose you're right. He said, um, well, I had actually, before that, I'd, I'd been down at the studio in Sussex with Pino Palladino, and we were driving back in my car, and he just casually mentioned that before I got the phone call, he said I was with Pete Townsend yesterday in the studio because he was doing the White City album. He said he was asking about you. I went, you're asking about me? He said, yeah, he's a big fan. He, if I... He got on the, the desk and did a complete impression of it. So I, I stopped the car on the motorway. I said, say that? Say that again? He said, yeah, he did a great impersonation of you. So I was kind of primed in a way that, you know, so this would happen. So he asked me to go around to his studio in in, um, in southwest London. So I went around there, read a quick play. I played him some stuff. And he said, great. And so before I knew it, I was driving every day from southeast London to what's that studio called, out, out on the Thames of a rehearsal studio with boxes of cassettes that they sent me. Because you've got to remember, this is before the internet. <laughs> yep. We'll see. So boxes of cassettes. And my Who knowledge was like the, the first album, Who's Next, a bit of Quadrophenia. Then after that, I had no knowledge. You know, I'd sort of like, I didn't particularly like them after that. You know what I mean? It was just rough boys, yeah, whatever, and all that. But I was like, and all of that, oh, my head was swimming with all this stuff. So I had to learn like about 110 songs, Bloody one up. of which was the whole of Tommy, you know, and I had charts all over the floor and everything. <laughs> so, but it was, and also on top of that, Pete Townsend said to me, he said, listen, he said, I'm not going to be there for the first four weeks of rehearsal. Neither's Pete, neither's Roger. So they got a musical director in who didn't like me. He, d he wanted his friend in the band. So it was all these obstacles, you know. And he said, he said, I want you to do your thing. He said, I'm a big fan. Anyway, so Pete said, I want you to do your thing over the top of the band, you know. I said, because I love what you do and everything. He said, but because I'm not going to be there, I want you to play the rhythm parts as well. So I want you to cover for me because I won't be there. So I said, yeah, great, right. So not only have I got to learn these songs, which was like on charts, you know, books and books and charts and chord. I can read chord charts, but there comes a point when you don't want to look at bits of paper <laughs> or, or, or like an auto cue. You want to 
play the songs, you know. So you, I'll tell you one quick story. We, yeah, please. The Ox came in. He was the first one to come after their publicity tour of America. So the Ox came in. The loudest bass player in the world, but most softly spoken. Right? <laughs> and then Roger came in. He's like stripped to the waist, right? Like my band. <laughs> then Pete came in, and it's like obvious that Pete was the boss. So we're in this huge room at Norman Studios, which is made really small because we had screens up, and they built a little um, a little house for Pete, like with sound screens and windows. And they put little speakers in our picture of the Queen and flowers and everything. Because he was going to play acoustic guitar to help save his tinnitus because he was in this little box, you know what I mean? Yeah. So we're still not playing this. We've got horn section, we've got percussion, we've got backing vocals, we've got a thing and a thing. We got like, and I've got paper all over the floor for all the songs. So Pete comes in, miserable as fuck, you know, like, as he is. <laughs> And this minion comes comes down and goes, uh, Pete would like everyone to play uh, the overture from, from Tommy. Because like, the overture is like bits of it as an overture for Tommy, you know, thing in a different key and thing and thing. So right, so, like everyone were looking, looking down at the the, the, the paper, you know, playing. And there comes this bit about four minutes in. It's like the um, it's like the intro for Pinball Wizard, but in the different key, gee. So I thought, I know this bit's coming up, and I know what he's told me, right? But they've given him a guitar, and he's in this box with an acoustic guitar. I'm not actually looking at him because I'm too busy trying to figure out what's kind of. So it comes to this bit, and there's a bang, and there's nothing. <laughs> so I look across the room and he's like that with his arms folded and he's looking broken Rickenbackers at me uh, he's just staring at me so of course I start playing and the minute I start playing he, he kicks the screens over gets the acoustic guitar smashes it on the floor in bits walks straight over and comes right up to me like this at this point I haven't got a friend in the room you know because no one everyone's going <laughs> And he goes, what the fuck are you doing, man? I said, what do you mean? He said, that's my fucking bit there. Leave me something to do, for Christ's sake. Right, so I thought, I'm not going to take this. So I pulled him gently by his lapel, suit lapels. I said, listen, you've been away, swanning around America doing publicity. I've been covering for you here. And that bit there, I've been covering for you because I know that's your bit. And I saw you got an acoustic guitar. So I assumed that you were going to do that bit. And you know what he said to me? He said, he said, listen, it's my band. I can do whatever the fuck I like. And walked away. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, fun and games. But, you know, it was just, uh, it was just, it was a mind-boggling thing, really. You know, like 100,000 people every night. And uh, it was great. I couldn't believe it. And you mentioned Tommy there. I mean, one of the, the famous things you did was the was the twentieth anniversary, well, the twenty fifth anniversary, I think, wasn't it? Where you did it on stage with with some incredible guests. Elton John was there. I think Billy Joel was there as well, and and many others. Came out. What do you remember of that night? Well, uh, well the one in, in in America, yeah, in LA. in LA, yeah, yeah, yeah. And Billy Idol, who was top man, top man, Billy Idol. And we did it at the Albert Hall as well. Billy Idol brought his baby. 
nearly a baby. Oh, right. Nearly out of the curl lip thing. And the baby did it as well. <laughs> <laughs> and Billy Al's got a big spliff in his mouth while he's doing it from behind the Hammond organ. It was great. Stevie Winwood was aghast, didn't want pain, just wanted a cask of real ale backstage. Nice. Oh, man, you know what I mean? And uh, Yeah, and um, Elton John, I think he was still in a weird period, you know, as we all yep. did that. Things were different. <laughs> but, yeah, no, it was, it was quite something. But uh, we toured all around England and we toured all around America. We never really played the whole of Tommy apart from okay. once in New York. Let me tell you a story. We, we played it once in New York at the, at the uh, I think it's a Beacon Theatre, and they're all there, the mayor of New York. I think Jackie Onassis was there. Lots of famous people. And a friend of mine, an American guy, he messaged me and said, Boss, and he said, I can't believe you're playing with The Who. This is fantastic. He said, can you, he said, can you get me your tickets? I'll bring a girl with me. I went, yeah, I can get your tickets. So... Um, so before we played, I think, what we, I think yeah, what was it, Radio City, one of those anyway, I think it might have been, he came to my hotel room, Max, and he said, Boss, he said, this is fantastic, thanks for getting the ticket. He said, you know that really quiet bit where you go, bring, see me, feel me, but Roger's bit, he said, you know what I'm going to do? I said, what? He said, I'm going to stand up and point at you and go, I know him. He's my friend. I said, you, you better not do that. He said, I'm going to do that, man. He's my friend. I said, you better not do that. And so all the way through the gig, getting up, I'm really worried that he's going to do that. You know what I mean? But he didn't do it. And I thought, he didn't do it. You know, all that worrying for nothing. Oh, did you ever ask him why? <laughs> it was all, all great stuff. And, uh, I mean, there's a very funny who story on my on my YouTube channel. Steve Bolts is like stuff where I'm talking about that with John Entwistle and yeah, yeah, it was good stuff. Same thing after I did that. I mean, I got paid well, but I had to pay tax on it, and I didn't work for a couple of years because people go, "Well, don't ask him. He's uh, you know, he's playing with the Who," which I wasn't. I just did that, you know. Mm -hmm. But um, I think. That made me realise that that's as good as you can get, you know, playing for other people, you know. But it's great. It's good fun. And then, Incredible. Was, yeah. I never really wanted to be a session player, really. That, that wasn't my thing. I wanted to, you know, do my own thing. Some people that like to be a session player and like to do all that stuff. Me, I get I get really nervous if I'm in that high-pressure situation. have to perform like a monkey, you know, because I'm a bit... <laughs> I'm a bit and just to finish off bolts i mean um you said the atomic rooster is one of the bands so so fill us in what are you up to as well as atomic rooster what are you doing at the moment then well to make a living i do solo acoustic gigs i never thought i'd be doing that but that's good i'm self-contained playing pubs you know great you know what i mean and it's songs that i like to do you know my musical journey sid barrett johnny cash bob dylan that sort of thing uh, but my main thing is my band Dead Man's Corner, deadmanscorner.net, which is a very Gretsch guitar, very twang. It's kind of like, it's like a Tarantino, David Lynch soundtrack. So okay. it's a bit of surf, bit of rockabilly, bit of psychedelia. You know, it's all that stuff mixed in that I like. It's a three-piece thing. Yeah, that's one. 
that's my main thing at the moment because it's nice. they're all my songs so of course uh, yeah for that but rooster's great it's going to be going to be great at the con yeah yes that's it yeah, yeah. Nice. on lancashire great i'll be there perfect indeed hope you will <laughs> as long as your car makes it yeah, will do <laughs> <laughs> Lovely. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure chatting with you, Bolts, and uh, wish you the best of luck and uh, hopefully see you call. Yeah. All right. Nice one, Paul. Talk to you soon. And a big thanks to Bolts there. As I said earlier, check out bluesfestival.co.uk for all the details on the festival and head along and see Atomic Rooster and all the other great bands that are going to be there live. Right now is the time of the show for the top fives, and I haven't done one of these for a while, so I thought I'd throw myself in the deep end and attempt the impossible task of whittling the incredible back catalogue of The Who down to just five tracks. Obviously, it wasn't easy, and I'm going to have missed out your favourite song, no doubt, such is the nature of selecting just five. But please remember, this is my personal choice. It is highly subjective. I don't expect you to agree. In fact, I'd love to hear how you disagree, so please reach out with your own top fives this week as well. But here we go. My favourite top five songs from The Who, according to Vintage Rockwad. At five is the closing track on arguably their best album, 1971's Who's Next? In full, it's an eight and a half minute masterpiece about the fruitlessness of revolutions. It went top ten in the UK and got to number 15 in the US. And number five is Won't Get Fooled Again. Just like yesterday, then I'll get on my knees and pray. At four is another track from Who's Next, the opener in fact. Pete Townsend said the concept of a teenage wasteland came to him at Woodstock, seeing the hundreds of thousands of people gleefully wasted out of their minds. At four is Baba O'Reilly. At three is a top five hit in the UK from 1969 from the album Tommy. Pete famously said it was the most clumsy piece of writing he ever did, but I don't care. It's a classic. At three is Pinball Wizard. Always gets a replay, never seen him fall. At number two is a track from an album of the same name. This song is their highest charting single in the UK, peaking at number two in 1965. The song is so recognisable. It's an anthem of its generation and Rolling Stone magazine ranked it 11th on their greatest 500 songs of all time list. But it only makes my personal number two spot. At two is My Generation. And at number one is perhaps not an obvious choice. It closes the 1973 album Quadrophenia. This song for me is Peak The Who. It's raw and visceral with Roger Daltrey's vocals or screams, as would probably be better befitting the description, some of the best he's ever committed to record. The number one The Who song, according to Vintage Rock Pod, is Love Rain On Me.
So there you go, my top five favourite songs from The Who. I know it will spark debate, so many other songs could easily have made that list. I definitely toyed with a slightly left-field 80s choice of Eminence Front, which is such a great song, but ultimately I couldn't leave any of the five that I went with, so that one just misses out. But as always, I'd love to hear where you agree or disagree with my list. Please let me know. Email me vintagerockpod at gmail.com or catch me on any of the social media platforms. I'll stick a post up there with the list of top five songs and you can comment below. And I'll look forward to reading them and sharing them on next week's interview show. Well, that's it for episode 69 then. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. And if you did, please hit subscribe on whatever podcast platform you're listening to this on so you don't miss any more future big interviews or the new daily This Day Rocks shows as well. Give Vintage Rock Pod a follow or like on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram and YouTube and check out some of the other great shows that are on the Pantheon Podcast Network. So many great podcasts on there for you to check out. But that's it for me, though. I'll be back tomorrow for another This Day Rocks. But remember, if you come across anyone who isn't a fan of rock, just tell them, my music is better than yours. Take care. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.